right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. Uh, couldn't put the 2021 PGA Championship in the books without another recap. You heard us talk about it, but why not some perspective from somebody who caddied for the champion for some two and a half decades? A uh, ton of just stories from Bones about experiences he's had, and you're going to hear him. Talk, you're going to hear us talk some about Pinehurst in this. You know, the heartbreak of '99, and it just kind of dawned on me: is this great that they are Pinehurst is also a sponsor of this episode? Because it just speaks to the ability for people, everyday people like yourselves and I, to go play a golf course that major championships are held at, like Kiowa and like Pinehurst. We are huge fans of the number two course, the number four course, the cradle. We've had nothing but tremendous experiences there. Their arsenal goes so deep. They have so many offerings when it comes to the Pinehurst Brewing Company, a great place to go to you know, wind down after a round of golf. There's the deuce. You can roll right in there after a round on number two or number four or one or three or five. It is endless golf options, endless options you know, for hangouts with your buddies. You get the villas. They have the newly renovated Manor Inn. They got the Carolina Hotel there. It is called the St. Andrews of Golf for many reasons. So you can go to Pinehurst.com. Book your trip to Pinehurst now as soon as you can. There's so many. I cannot wait for 2024. Just talking about, you know, major championship golf and, and U.S. Opens and whatnot with Bones coming up. Uh, I cannot wait for the U.S. Open going back there. But get there before the next major. And then, you you know, a lot of people that watched Kiowa this past week said things like, ah, I do I want, I want to go play it. You have a chance to go play a place like Pinehurst, too, if you haven't been there uh, before in, in the coming years before another major. So. Without any further delay, let's get to our good friend, Bones, who is going to tell us a lot. A lot of stories about catting out at Kiowa this past week and, uh, of course, some perspective on Phil's win. Enjoy. All right, I'm going to start you off the softball, uh, an open-ended question. What's it like to get back on the bag for a major championship? I know you consider yourself more of a caddy than a broadcaster. I'm imagining that has to be at least uh, had to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it was great fun. I mean, I don't need to tell you what a really cool dude Max Homa is. Um, I've got to know him a little bit in the last year or so. We play at the same golf course here in Scottsdale, but my goodness gracious, he's just an incredibly fun and interesting guy to be around, uh, a world-class ball striker. It certainly didn't go the way we wanted it to last week, but I enjoyed it immensely. I thought that uh, the ocean course was incredible there at Kiwa Island, and just the fact that they moved it from August to May, you know, having mm. been there in 2012, and it just wasn't relentlessly hot. Um, just made for that much of a better week. So I had an absolute blast. Yeah, I'd imagine that 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 venue is maybe the one that makes the most sense for this new date on the calendar. But so just just a, already, I'm so intrigued by your perspective on something like you call Max a world-class ball striker. Obviously, we know that, but you've seen some of the most amazing golf that, on this planet that's been played over the last 30-some years, both with who you caddy for and who you played for. So what, what do you mean when you say that? What impresses you about someone uh, about someone like Max? And, and I want to kind of understand what the learning learning curve is like for going on a guy's bag and for a very short, short stint. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll, answering this, the, the last part of what you mentioned there, I mean, this wasn't going to work for a guy in Palm Springs, you know? Right. So, you know, getting out there and, you know, in a Tuesday practice round, there was a wind that was so strong that there were players in the field having trouble getting to the 16th and 18th fairways. So it was, you know, quite the place to work for a guy uh, the first time around. I mean, it went really well and we had a great time. Certainly, again, not not uh, not the score we would have liked. But, I mean, the thing about about Max is, as you saw, that for everybody that watched the golf last weekend, these guys are on the tee having these incredibly specific conversations about what you're aiming at because it was just that demanding. And, of course, you had the wind and you've got these peak diangles. So you were getting up on these holes and saying, okay – Let's take it at that TV tower in the distance. And the player knows they only literally have maybe, you know, 10 or 12 yards on either side of it. And, and if they don't pull that off, it's in the rough or, or one of these waste areas. So I, I was really impressed um, with Max's ability to hit, a, you know, a 310-yard driver right at our target. Hmm. Um, I just, you know, certainly he's a young player. He's an up-and-coming player. I think his, his, his future potentially is through the roof. Um, and I think that he's got this incredible asset in that, in my opinion, I think at worst, he's a top 10 ball striker on the tour, but bordering on top five. Wow. 
we were obviously close to Max, and he, I put him almost more in the friend category than I do tour player. So it's kind of like when he when he's doing really well, it's hard for me to really grasp. Like, oh, yeah, he really is that good because it's so wishful. It's so hopeful for me. <laughs> I'm rooting for him. I guess it's hard to take a step back and really appreciate actually how good he is. I don't know if that made sense. But so you said a lot of interesting stuff there already that I want to want to try to, you know, unpack with you. Pete Dye angles. What what does that mean to you know to the best players in the world? What what is it about like something like Kiowa that makes them uncomfortable or maybe even makes your job harder as a caddy? Yeah. So in walking the golf course this Saturday before, I was thinking about what I was going to say to Max. You know, when he saw it for the first time on Monday, and you know what I the point I tried to make as a caddy, and I'm sure a lot of guys did when you're talking about the course to your players as you're warming up is, you know, don't prejudge how big these fairways are until you get out there and you stand on them, you know, 300 yards off the tee or whatever it may be. It's just one of those courses with the way he does things visually where you stand up there and you go, my goodness, where the heck am I supposed to hit this ball that, you know, there's, you you know, things are perched up. Um, there's trees, there's dunes, there's this, there's that. It's very visually intimidating. I would liken it to the first time I ever saw whistling straights where again, as a caddy, you're walking it and you're going, Oh my goodness, there's, 10,000 bunkers on this golf course. How in the world am I going to learn it? And you realize after a while what's in play and what's not. But I, I do think that it's part of the genius of Pete Dye in that he gets in your head a little bit, certainly with the tee ball and, and, and to some degree, every shot you play thereafter. So um, it, it was one of those courses. It, it, it was an amazing test. And I think it, it showed how you know fantastic a course it was and how things played out on Sunday. Hmm. Well, I promise you, uh, I, for the listeners at home, I put in the request to interview you on Thursday of last week. This is well before Phil Mickelson went on to win it. We're going uh, to touch on a lot of that, but it's truly one of the great coincidences of our time. But so something interesting, though, paralleling what we saw out of Phil and his brother Tim on the, on the bag this week, talking through shots and conditions like Kiowa with the wind the way that it was and the preciseness of some of these shots that are required and you can see the level of detail in those shots he's talking about Pell's this Pell whatever all this blah 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 and between that you know and you know Tim's been on his bag for four years now you know they he's seen a lot out of Phil he knows Phil's game like there is years and years of data that go into helping make a decision like that you don't have years and years of data of knowing if if Max is cutting a shot into a draw wind, how much that takes off of it, what his flighted seven iron goes versus a full one. What it, It's got to be more demanding to caddy in an environment like that for a player you don't know that well when other than just stock shots, a lot of different shots are required. Is that all fair to say? That, yeah, that's very fair to say. And, and again, another thing you don't know are the player's tendencies. You know, what does he really like to do and what are those couple of things that he doesn't, you know, so again, there's, you're trying to learn everything you possibly can. And, and when Max was on the range working with his teacher, Mark, I was trying to listen to everything that was said, just trying to pick up, you know, how Max does things, what he looks at. And then certainly I was texting quite a lot with Joe Griner, his caddy in the days and weeks prior to the event. But, uh, but, but you're exactly right. I mean, you have to find, you know, I've, I've caddied for players before that, you know, don't like to hook this club or don't like to cut that club. I mean, they've all got their little things. And, and uh, certainly it's stuff that you learn with time. But, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like cramming for a final. Um, but again, it was it, it, the thing I had going for me again is that it's Max and he, he just flushes the ball. Hmm. He could also flight the ball very well. And I think I'm sure that's something that we'll talk about now as we get into last week's tournament, because it's something that Phil does. Uh, he's incredibly underrated at it in terms of can you keep your ball down into a significant wind? You know, when there's a lot of heat on, I mean, ev- anybody can play golf in a dome at that level. And the reality is on the PGA tour, in my experience is some guys can flight the ball far better than others. And I think those are guys that certainly at the end of the day, end up with more success but in my opinion, they also tend to play better in majors. Hmm. What is there anything you would have had from 2012 that would have been helpful nine years later? I mean, you know, anything at all, or is it just kind of like, oh, I kind of remember this, kind of remember this, or you need to see it fresh? Um, well, to be honest with you, it's funny. Max texted me um, a, a week or two prior to the term and said, you know, what couple of things would you, you know, throw at me? And I said, well, you know, when we played there last time, you had this hammering south wind southwest wind that basically made the tee shots for a right-hander very tough on 10 11 12 13 
again, getting back to the Phil thing that we'll talk about later, that ended up on Sunday, I would assume, being an incredibly comfortable win for Phil as a left-hander. It's it's such a fascinating part of the game to me. You know, I've said a couple of times on the air, and Phil and I used to joke about it, the fact that, you know, Augusta National is the greatest left-handed golf course ever. I think, there's a, you know, there's a real reason why, other than being great players, you know, Phil's had so much success there, Bubba, Mike Weir. There's just certain shots there that really um, fit for lefties. Now, I'm not saying that necessarily about Kiowa, but after all the amazing play that Phil had and did the first three days there at Kiowa to put himself in this amazing position, leading, going into the last day, to wake up on Sunday and to feel that south-southwest wind, um, and he was going to have you know, a very comfortable feel on these tee shots playing on the back nine. It had to be an amazing feeling. So I, I guess I'm getting, you know, a little bit lost here, but I told Max to expect that this, this wind I've just referenced and we didn't get it. We didn't really get it at all. In fact, we didn't get it in practice. We certainly did it, get it on Thursday and Friday, the two days that Max played, but it showed up on Sunday and I'm sure it was a, 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 a fantastic thing for Phil and Tim. I was trying to make this point on our Sunday recap about just thinking about being left-handed at the highest level in the game and how there's three, maybe four guys, you know, I forget how many exactly there were in the field, maybe four left-handers in the field, right? And if you chopped up all the golf courses in the world, I have no idea what the number would be. And it would depend on the different wins like you're talking about. But even if it's at worst 65-35, that 65% of courses favor right-handers, how much of an advantage you have on the 35% when it's only you and three other guys that are playing from this side of the ball and you're the best of those lefties <laughs> going up against everyone that's all kind of fighting it out together, all 19 other right-handers that are in, in contention, how much of an advantage that might be. And that's like really just starting to hammer in for me, even if it's just a wind direction like you talked about. Am I on to something there? Is that kind of like, kind of, I, I'm just wondering now, I know there's a lot of reasons, club availability and just more people being right-handed, but why more people at the highest level don't play left-handed? Yeah, such a great point you just made. I mean, you just, you know, brought it up, you know, at a level that uh, is really, really interesting. And, and um, that's a fantastic point. And, and you're right. It's, it's, you know, I'm sure there's an amazing article out there somewhere or some kind of, you know, mathematical breakdown and all this data that we deal with now where somebody could really come up with something that much more interesting about what you're talking about. I mean, I can remember the first two or three times I went with Phil to Kapalua and the prevailing wind was blowing and you're thinking, man, he's got no chance here. And I'll <laughs> never forget. I think we played on Saturday or Sunday, one year there with Fred Funk and you get on the 18th tee there and it's right to left helping wind, which you typically have there down that hill that we all know. And Fred Funk's out driving Phil. And he's like, are you kidding me? He's pulling his hair out over there. And I don't think he ever played again. But it was funny because uh, I said something on the air about it, about how when that particular wind blows there at Kapalua, you know, it basically ruins any chance the left-hander had. And uh, Mark Rolfing was doing the TV with us in the next commercial break. He was like, holy Toledo, you're right. I've never thought about that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and of course, as you guys know, he knows more about Hawaii and that place than just about anybody on the planet. So it's interesting. It's it's really quirky. I mean, there are so many times when I caddied for Phil, he would drive the ball into a fairway bunker and I would just look at what he had to deal with and said, man, this isn't fair. This is uh, whoever put this bunker here and how they did it. They obviously thought that a left-hander would never tee it up. Um, it, it, it's just crazy. One year we played in the masters and Phil, I'll never forget, got to the second hole there. Obviously it's Augusta national. This is before he ever won it. And he tees his ball up to create something of an angle there. Number two at Augusta takes, starts to take a practice swing and there's a water cooler in the way. And again, you know, just little th silly things like that. But at that point, you know, whoever put out the water that day at Augusta National hadn't, you know, thought at all there might be a left-hander in the field. And we spent half the day laying down water coolers on the ground prior to him being able to tee off. I mean, it's it's a very interesting thing to me, probably more so because I caddied for a left-hander. But it's it's really big some weeks. It's, it's really annoying some other weeks. But uh, again, the big payoff I always thought was when you get to the Masters. Mm. Yeah, and it's and you know for anyone that's listening, they may just be saying, "Well, gosh, it must suck for the sixty-five percent of courses or whatever that don't work in your favor." But 
it you know that's that's golf in general you're not 60 at least 65 percent of the time for other reasons you're eliminated for whatever reason you know going into a week but if you get a really good advantage 35 45 percent of the time whatever that might be you may end up with with six majors in in your closet and uh, like I said, so what do you, when you're talking about the wins, you know, even, I, I think I know what you mean, but what is it about a particular wind direction that a lefty would hate or something? What, what, what would, what would you benefit from greatly or what would a Phil have benefited greatly? Maybe it's something like Kapalua, like what you're talking about. Well, I think that it's, um, you know, certainly I'm not an instructor, but I have certainly listened to these people that know way more than I do. And I've always heard people say, you know, don't ever practice in a wind that's blowing into your back on the driving range. I mean, I remember playing uh, playing in the LA Open one year. Of course, I'm not playing, excuse me, caddying for Phil. And we played with a guy that was leading after one round. And uh, he, he went to the range after around their Riviera and hit balls for an hour with the wind blowing straight into his back. And his caddy was just pulling his hair like, what is my guy doing? And I'll never forget, we get we got on that first tee the next day and the guy hit two balls out of bounds on number one and, and missed the cut. I mean, you know, you, you, there is just certain winds that, that certainly make you feel more comfortable when a wind's basically blowing into your chest. It's 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 much easier to deal with than, than the wind coming from that other direction. And and certainly, you know, we saw it with Brooks and, and to some degree with Louis when they got on that 10th hole on on Sunday and it's into you hard and out of the left. It, you know, they're trying to, in a sense, pull the ball into that wind. If you hit something in the heel and it gets up in that left, right wind on that golf course, it's going into some kind of swamp and you're never going to see the ball again. So we saw kind of time after time and, and all of us would do it that, you know, tendency to kind of pull the ball into that left, right wind. And, and Max, as a result was, excuse me, um, Brooks, as a result was missing some some fairways in that direction. And it's incredibly easy to do. It's just so hard to trust it when you have that wind that's uncomfortable. And again, uh, it was just something that those guys fought uh, on Sunday. It wasn't probably nearly as friendly a win to them as it was the first three days. A quick break to remind you that No Lang Up is, of course, brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro. There's a lot of talk about rangefinders this past week, but if you didn't hear the big news that we told you about last week, Precision Pro Golf proud to announce the launch of their new, smartest, most personalized rangefinder ever, the R1 Smart Rangefinder, available for pre-order at precisionprogolf.com. I actually told somebody about this rangefinder um, today playing golf, and I told him GPS distance to the front, center, and back of the green, and his jaw, I'm not joking, his jaw literally dropped. I actually haven't really fully grasped all the capabilities of this rangefinder. We don't have ours yet. We're waiting for him. It is the rangefinder reinvented, combining the functions of laser, GPS, and cell phone all into one device, and at its core, the R1 Smart Rangefinder is a premium rangefinder. Once you pair it to the, the powerful Precision Pro app on your smartphone, the R1 helps golfers see the course in a completely new way. It's got all the normal stuff, slope-adjusted distances, but like I said, it's got the GPS to front, center, and back. It's got wind assist, which measures the effect the wind's going to have on your shot. Also, the Find My Precision Pro function. Neil and I both almost left our rangefinders on the carts today. It alerts you when your rangefinder's been left behind. You'll never lose it again. But the most innovative feature on the R1 Smart Rangefinder is Precision Pro's game-changing new MySlope technology. Gives you customized measurement that is specific to you and your environment by combining a golfer's unique ball data with real-time weather data. So we're talking launch angle, ball spin, spin rate. Uh, are combined with the temperature, altitude, humidity to create a distance that's tailored to you and no one else. Because if it's not personalized, then it's not going to be worth much to you and it's not precise. So the R1 Smart Rangefinder, the Rangefinder reinvented, available for limited pre-order at precisionprogolf.com. Order today. Inventory is limited. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get back to Bones. Well, in, in episode 129 of this podcast, you predicted that both Tiger and Phil would win a Masters in their 50s. Uh, so I'm guessing if I ask you if you're surprised that Phil Mickelson won a major championship at age 50, you'll say that you're not. Is that fair to say? I would say that I, you know, I certainly got part of it wrong. I, I did. I don't know, you know, who I said it to. I certainly said it to some friends. We were talking about it at the golf course today that I thought that Phil would break the record for the oldest person to win a major. Uh, but I, but I, I, I assumed it would be the masters and, 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 and he, I couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, you know, certainly guys like Phil and Tiger have, in my opinion, an incredible advantage at Augusta National, not just because they've won it several times, but because they know the breaks on the golf course. They know everything about it. Of course, it's the one major that's played there every single year, and they've got these incredible memories and all this data, you know, in, in their brains about what and what not to do there. 
But for Phil to go to a golf course as penal as that one last week and do what he did, I mean, it's 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 incredible. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest feats in the history of the game. I'm not a golf historian Um, and I'm happy for him for multiple reasons. And certainly one of them is that, you know, having been his caddy for 25 years, you know, you read these articles about, you know, where does Phil Mickelson rank in the greatest golfers of all time? And I remember you know, these folks saying, well, he's 11 to 15, you know, there's this and that guy, and you've got Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus and, and all the other greats. But but with what Phil did last week and the age that he did it at, um, I think it's it's not only an amazing accomplishment, but it's also uh, going to make it that much more likely that he's thought of as, you know, potentially down the road, one of the 10 greatest golfers of all time. And, and I can certainly, from my little caddy vantage point, you know, having been there for a while with him, say that, you know, he, he's he's a mind-blowingly talented guy. And some of those shots that he hit last week, even early on, I saw him hit a shot. I was, Max was on the same side of the draw as him, so I didn't see much. But I was watching the highlights on Thursday, and he hit this flighted six or seven iron into 15. And I was like, wow, at 50 to hit that shot to get the club set as well as he did the width on the way down. It was really, really impressive. And, you know, I kind of thought to myself, you know, he sure looks like he's onto something here. And uh, again, you know, you know, we, we saw what Watson did at the open championship at age 59. You know, I remember caddying, I think in 97 rated the masters and Jack Nicholas was in contention at like 57 or eight years old. There is no question that that uh, that Phil and hopefully Tiger can can win the Masters well into their fifties and and my goodness after what Phil did last week who knows what he might do here hmm. in, in in the coming years hmm. when you guys teed it up there in 2012 was Kiowa a place you had highlighted was it a place you were dreading in terms of how it matched up for his game you know even then when he was at a much higher phase in his career I would say because. Kiowa is tough. It's not adding up for me. Like, I'm still kind of pinching myself. Like, really feel like Kiowa? Like, kind of thought you needed to drive it straight out, you know, out there. I know he drove it great this past week. But what, what, if you're looking around at all the major venues of the last 10, you know, in the next coming 10 years, would you have picked Kiowa as one for Phil to have, you know, won another PGA yet? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate your point and, and probably not. And, and, and you know, <laughs> and again, I'm going to tip my hat. It's just incredible. I mean, again, certainly. You know, post Butch Harmon, when Phil, you know, in my opinion, really learned how to flight the ball and and um, had almost won the Open Championship in 11 and then did in 13. And he it just, you know, created this, you know, this new weapon for him. You know, certainly, you know, a lot gets made about Phil hitting foul balls and about the this and the that. But, you know, I was talking about it with a caddy friend of mine here recently. I mean, in my opinion, you get these players that have generational hands, just hands that are a gift from God. And, uh, you know, it sure seemed to me that Seve Ballesteros had it in his day. And uh, it sure seems to me like Jordan Spieth has it now. And, and my goodness, Phil Mickelson has at least what those other two guys have. And, and that's an amazing thing because Phil's hands are so just wonderful for him that you know, he can literally get off in terms of where his swing is and save it with his hands. I mean, I caddied for him at a Phoenix Open that he won. And then again, at 1999, when he lost to Payne Stewart on the last hole in the U.S. Open, you know, Phil played that U.S. Open in 1999 and hit one cut shot in 72 holes. Something was going on with his swing that he didn't like. He could draw it. But, you know, it's a U.S. Open. You've got to work the ball. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And Phil would just did it with his hands and, you know, and damn near pulled it off in terms of winning it. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a gift from God. And, and it's an amazing thing to have with all these other assets he has. He's so mentally tough. He handles the big stage. But uh, I think it's a big part of what makes him, you know, this incredible golfer that he's been over the last uh, 30 years or so. Well, I, I'll, you have so much experience with him in, in big moments in so many different ways. And this is what is it? How different does it feel being in the final group of a major championship versus a normal event? Right. And I feel like you've you've also seen a whole arc of like 
you know, he lived through this heartbreak period for so long and then has had six major championships is so many major championships. Yet at the same time, he's still kind of the heartbreak kid when it comes to these and just the ups and downs of how to handle that pressure. It's got to be amazing for you to watch, you know, somebody's progression through their sporting career and how they've handled that. Because as I'm watching on Sunday, I'm like, Dude, this guy has been in everything. I think he's got this. Like, I don't think he's going to let this pressure get to him. He's been through this pressure so many times. He knows how to handle it. What was that like for you to watch and kind of with all the background experience you have on the bag for him? Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. You're right. It's um it, it's 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 a, it's next level obviously. And what was interesting, I think for Phil and certainly it was from he was you know, some of the first few times we got in that position where you're in the last group of a major uh, on Sunday, we were playing with Tiger woods when he was winning the tiger slam you know and and he was swinging at it, it, it you know you're trying to win the masters or, or or whatever the other major is and you know for phil you know early on in his career you're playing against a guy that looks like he's virtually unbeatable and certainly as competitive as phil is and his want to win whether it's the masters or something else you know you're giving it your absolute all but you know you know let's also keep in mind that phil's done what he's done playing against arguably the greatest player of all time basically throughout his entire career almost so you know the early tiger days were tough in that you know you're watching these guys hit these you know this skyrocket two iron and you know these putts under pressure and again tiger being tiger so you know you learned a lot then but you certainly took it on the chin and then you just you just kind of hang in there hang in there um and, and it's funny, I think I told the story on an earlier podcast I did with you, Chris, but, you know, in 04, when finally things did work out for Phil and he made that run on the back nine at Augusta National, you know, earlier that week, we were playing the 13th hole and uh, he hit a four iron into that green and it overhooked and went down into Ray's Creek. And it was a real, you know, you hear the groans and you're like, oh boy. And, and you know, we walked up there to look for that golf ball and there was a manhole cover sized area of turf in the middle of the creek that had grown up you know through it it was never there before i've never seen it there since and phil's ball was on that piece of turf in the middle of this creek and he damn near chipped it in for eagle and i remember just walking off that green with him looking at him nope we didn't say a word but we smiled and we were just basically saying hey man this is all going to work out this could be our week and uh, you know it's just you get those breaks and majors on occasion and things fall into place and he went on to win and he's had this amazing career but but you're right, that progression, you know, through the majors in those last groups dealing, you know, with, uh, you know, Tiger or the, the you know, the, the heartbreaking loss to, to Payne Stewart in 99 or David Toms in 2001 at the PGA. And you learn a lot and, and it's something you can draw on later on. But uh, obviously, as Phil showed us over the weekend, I mean, he's I mean, he just looked incredible. I mean, certainly he had a couple of shots on Sunday that didn't work out, but even the shot on 13 that trickled in the water wasn't a bad shot at all. And when he made the bogey on 14, he did an iron that you could tell in the air. He absolutely loved. So man, he, he absolutely studded it uh, mm. there on Sunday. I thought, I thought it was impressive as, as all get out. What would you say of the heartbreaks? What, what one comes to mind as being the most, the most heartbreaking. I know he has said, uh, I think he has referenced 2013 at marrying being one, and everyone assumes the answer is winged foot, but he really just didn't quite have it on that final day at winged foot. What, what do you get the sense in terms of, uh, you know, what was the most heartbreaking? Well, you're, you're absolutely right about winged foot, and certainly it's, you know, the, the question you get asked almost all the time when you're around and about talking to people about golf or if they bring up Phil's career. For me, it's it's, you know, you know, Wingfoot was no fun. And, and when I went there last year uh, for the U.S. Open for NBC, I had a stomachache the whole week. But um, it, it's that loss was nothing for me like the losses that you have when your player plays incredibly well and it just doesn't work out at the end. And, and you know, you say Phil referenced uh, 13 there, uh, there at Marion, and that was a tough one. Uh, for me, it would be 99 at, at Pinehurst uh, with Payne Stewart. Um, Phil just was was just tremendous uh, that day, uh, and, and Payne Stewart just uh, you know just rose above and made this you know incredibly difficult par putt on 16 from like 25 or 30 feet that broke two ways right in the middle, hit a six iron uh, to five for six feet on 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 17 and made it, and ultimately the putt on 18 win by one, and, and, and more power to him. It, it was amazing golf and. And the, the loss in 04 to uh, Ratif Goosen at Shinnecock, where, again, Phil played just really, really well. 
uh, and it didn't work out on greens that had basically died that day and must have been, I don't know, 15 on the stint meter. Um, but, uh, you know, that's golf. Uh, but it, it, it certainly also made those wins. And, and, and as you know, you mentioned the, the, the loss to uh, at Marin in 2013 to Justin Rose. And, you know, the, that a month later, Phil goes over and wins the Scottish Open and the Open Championship back to back. And, you know, five back going into Sunday there at, at Muirfield and wins by three. And, you know, for me personally, it made getting over that Marion loss uh, quite a bit easier and, and, you know, couldn't have been more proud of the guy. And it's probably why I was so emotional on the last green. Yeah. Well, it's also that it didn't make sense that our last real strong memory of, of Phil in a major would be the 2016 British Open, which was just the most absurd performance. Maybe, you know, I think truly one of the greatest in major championship history for a non-winner, like literally statistically. And, you know, it just didn't it had to be such a hard pill to swallow. What do you what do you remember about that? <laughs> um, it was crazy. As you know, Chris. You, cert- you certainly can get some luck at the Open Championship with tee times. I mean, huh. that's just a fact. You, you know, you know I, I'll never forget caddying for Phil at the 2010 Open Championship at St. Andrews, and we got the horrible end of the tee times. I think we played late on Thursday. So the people in the morning were playing in four-mile-an-hour winds, and we played in 24 uh, in the afternoon. I think there was actually a wind delay, and, and you know, I remember Phil being really upset and, 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 and all the guys were in that half, you know, you go over there at St. Andrews, you know, the draw comes out, you get the bad end. Um, it's happened so many times and certainly as well as Stenson and Phil played there in 16, um, you know, they were on the great end of the draw and, and, and then just, you know, basically separated themselves from the field. Um, there was just so much going on. Uh, I just remember the crowd there on, on Sunday just, you know, it, it was very black and white. You were either rooting for Stenson or you were rooting for Phil. There was no in between. So it was it was like an NFL game. It was, you know, in terms of how passionate the fans were and certainly uh, and what they yelled out. And it was, you know, back and forth. And, you know, Henrik comes out on, on Sunday, I think, and hits his uh, approach shot on the first hole very heavy and makes a five. Phil almost hold an eight iron. And you're thinking, you know, okay, let's see if we can kind of get out in front of this guy. And then <laughs> I think Henrik birdied ten of the next seventeen holes, and, mm-hmm. and and that was that. But it was it was just one of those days, as tough as it was, where it was an honor to be there and to witness it firsthand. Um, there's a funny story about how we were on the thirteenth hole um, that day, and there was somebody somewhere in the in the clubhouse, you know, monitoring pace of play from an RNA standpoint. So I went back to get a water, and Henrik and Phil Hurry walked off the tee, and this very nice gentleman who was our walking scorer came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Hey, excuse me, would you please let uh, Henrik and Phil know that they need to speed up their pace of play? And I said, um, uh, sir, I think these guys are putting on quite a show for you and the RNA. Let's leave them alone. Uh, I don't, I don't think this is the time or the place, but it, it, it was awesome. And Henrik's such a good guy, but yeah, it stung. And, uh, I remember going back to the open championship, uh, not long after that, I think when I worked for NBC the following year and somebody came up to me and he was like a professor of mathematics here or there. I, I want to say the guy was from Finland. I'm not really sure, but he went on to tell me about how he'd broken it down in terms of where this ranked in terms of, you know, major championship golf, either in the modern era or in the last hundred years. I'm not really sure. But according to this gentleman, fifth, uh, Phil's performance there at Troon was the fifth uh, greatest performance in the history of major championship golf. And of course, they ended up finishing second. But, you know, that's that that's golf and and you deal with it and try and do better the next time. But uh, certainly an amazing week. Well, you know, we talked to you. You mentioned Phil's hands earlier, and that may speak to why, how you're able to answer this question. But what, what gives Phil this longevity? Right. I mean, obviously, we know the talent, but talent is fleeting. You know, we've seen a lot of great players to have great five year runs and not last forever. What would you say? And, and a lot of it. You know, when we were looking at Phil's body, the way he treated his body for many years is not the same as he currently treats it. And so I, I don't know if I personally thought he would have this crazy longevity that a lot of people have much more accurately predicted than I did. But in your mind, what, what, what would you say gives Phil this longevity? I, I would have to say that I think it's just this syrupy, long swing that he has with, with a beautiful transition. Uh, I think it's, it's a swing that, that puts very little pressure on his body. I think it's, uh, if you look at Fred Couples, uh, a big reason 
with that same kind of technique that he's been able to play some really good golf with, 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 with not the greatest back over the years. And again, those two are, are about the same in terms of just the tempo and, and how far back they get the club and how the club basically bounces from the takeaway to the forward swing in such a beautiful manner. And uh, that would be my answer as to why I think he's just played virtually injury free his entire career. What, what did your guy's work look like? What did his work look like in particular leading up into majors, right? I mean, when you're at that high of a level, you treat the majors especially as your, you know, the four weeks of the year that you want to peak the most. Do you do you recall, did, would you guys meet up, you know, before events for any kind of practice together? Or would, what do you know that he did in terms of prep to try to peak? I think it's what every, every golfer, especially at the highest level, wants to do is peak at the right time. How does he do it? Well, I think he and Tiger did a really smart thing and they, they would go to these venues in the two or three weeks prior to the event and get a vast majority of their work done. And, and Phil took it next level. He would, you know, spend maybe an hour on one green and keep these incredibly extensive notes uh, that, uh, that certainly he would be able to use tournament weekend as, as it turns out, you know, as long as his career has been, he's able to use those notes at, major championships when you go back there several years down the road. Um, so just get a lot of your work done. I mean, those major weeks, for, for especially for those superstar players, are incredibly difficult. Certainly, you know, you're trying to cram, you know, 18 holes in there, here or there or working with your teacher. But if you look at a place like Kiowa, you know, a guy like, say, Jordan Spieth, he's coming in from Dallas you know, you, you've got to conserve energy. That, that, that's just such a huge part of it. You know, the one thing that you don't ever, I think, want to see, you know, your player deal with come Thursday of a huge tournament is to look at him and think that he's tired. And I think that, um, you know, Phil and Tiger did a great job of that. I've heard young players on the tour now, you know, talk about, you know, visiting these sites and doing the same thing so they can, again, um, save up in terms of how they feel for later in the week. But between their media obligations and autographs, you've got people pulling at you and, it, and it's not easy. So if you can get 70 or 80% of your, your work done, I think before the tournament week, I think you're way ahead of the game. I think you misspoke there. Cause I know you didn't mean, you didn't mean he spends an hour on one green, right? Something has to be wrong. <laughs> that, that can't be accurate. An hour on one green. Yeah, yeah absolutely. He's uh, <laughs> we would go to some of these sites and we would be there for two or three days and we'd get there at seven or eight o'clock in the, in the morning and, and leave it dark. And he would just have these incredible notes and uh, it's uh, it, it, it's what he did. And, and, and uh, you know, it's funny. I'll never forget when he when he did it at, at uh, Baltusrol in 2005. And, you know, the course was just incredibly hard. And, he you know, he said after our first day of practice, he said, man, you, you, you've got to, you know, play your heart out just to shoot even par here. We were having a sandwich after that first day of practice. And, you know, there was no doubting how, how hard the golf course was. But he did all this work, got it done. You know, tournament week didn't have to do too much. He was ready to roll, and he shot 68-65, I think, the first two rounds and just kind of hung on from there on his way to his second um, major victory. And I thought that that preparation had a lot to do with him coming out on top. Wow. And, you know, I, I guess I don't follow swing, you know, stuff too closely, you know, who's working with who and what. what does your job ever as a caddy to keep an eye on how things work? And I, I'm wondering how maybe that relationship would change as Phil has transitioned to different coaches and stuff throughout his career. Is that anything you ever got involved in or just listened in on to understand, you know, why things were going wrong at certain times? You know, you want to stay kind of stay in your lane, certainly as a caddy, but you have these relationships with players and they may ask you about this or that, but, uh, uh, and I think it's, it's certainly obvious that, 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 a, that a majority of these players, it seems like, you know, they're going to go through, through a few coaches, you know, over the course of their career. Certainly Tiger has, Phil has, um, there, there is, it's, it's a, it's a fun story for me in terms of, uh, how, how Phil came to work with the coach that he has now, Andrew Getz. And so, uh, Phil had this amazing stretch run with uh, with Butch Harmon, learned so much. Butch was a huge part of that Open Championship win in 13 and, and a lot of other events. And then uh, they split up and Phil was kind of on his own. And uh, around the time this was happening, I had an, a, a, I have a son named Oliver and he's 11 or 12 and he's thinking that he wants to take some golf lessons. So I take him down to the local golf course here and there's this guy named Andrew Getson and he's rumored to be the best teacher of juniors here in, in town. So we take him down there. Oliver takes his lesson and I just, you know, sit on the ground and watch. And I was very impressed by Andrew's demeanor and, you know, how easy he made things uh, sound. And so 
I'm like, well, geez, I, I want a lesson from this guy. I mean, I'm hooking it all over the place. I'm not nearly as good a player as I want to be. I'm going to go take a lesson from him. So I go and take a lesson from him and, and, and I'm out there and I'm hitting my bad shots here and there. And he's trying to explain to me, you know, what I'm doing wrong. So at one point I hit this, you know, horrible shot and, and he's telling me about, you know, I, how narrow I am. And he goes, you know, that's what your boss does wrong too. And I said, say what? He goes, well, no, I, I watch a lot of golf on TV and I, you know, I really lo- you know, love Phil. And, and I've noticed that, you know, when he gets off, that's where he gets off too. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So we had a chuckle and I went about, you know, my lesson and that was basically it. So literally a week or two later, uh, I'm on the range with Phil at a tour event and Phil's, you know, trying to figure some things out on his own and he hits a poor shot and he's just so frustrated and and he says to me, gosh, you know, I hate it when that happens. I don't know what I'm doing. I think, I'm, you know, I might be this. I might be that. And he says something to just trigger something in my head. I said, yeah, that's what Andrew told me. You did, uh, you did wrong last week, too. And, and I'm like, and he looked at me. He said, what? I said, oh, no, no, nothing, 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 nothing. He goes, no, seriously, what did you just say? I said, no, no, it's not a big deal, Phil. Let's just let it go. He goes, no, no, what would you just say? I said, well, I was taking a lesson at Greyhawk last week. And this guy, Andrew, that I took a lesson from, you know, he was trying to let me know what I'm doing wrong. And he basically, you know, paralleled it with you and what he sees in your swing. He, and he said, well, what, what does he say I'm doing wrong? And I said, well, you know, maybe a little of this, a little of that. And he's like, you got his number? I'm like, yeah, I got his number filled, but you don't need to call this guy. Let's just leave him alone. Let him do his gray off thing. He's fine. He's a really good guy. He goes, nope, I'm going to call him. I want to hear it. If this guy's got something to say about my game, I want to hear it from him. I'm like, oh boy. So I give him Andrew's number. And I'm like, I, now I've got to call Andrew and prepare him for what's coming down the pike here. And so anyway, I let it go. And sure enough, Phil calls him at some point in the next few days and says, yeah, I hear you've got some opinions about my golf swing. And uh, Andrew's like, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And so we rattled off a couple of things. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, he's on a plane to San Diego and they've been together ever since. So it's fun for me because I have a tremendous amount of respect for Andrew. And I think he's done a a fantastic job with Phil and, you know, kind of like got a lot of the attention. I feel like he deserves last week with Phil's win of the PGA. But the the irony for me is that it all started with a golf lesson for my 12 year old son, Oliver. Oh my goodness. What a story (laughs) that, that, that ties in perfectly with how I asked that in terms of, do you ever feel that you're okay to speak up or say something when you know, you're not a swing expert. That is, that is tremendous. But I know it's got to be hard for you to think of and remember stories you've told on this podcast or whatnot, but I know that you do, you do a lot of speaking and I know you are a good storyteller. And I'm just wondering if there's any other Phil major stories that are, that are tip of the tongue. And I can stop you if it's one that you've told on this one, but ones that you do, that are some of your go-tos and favorites to tell. There, there's so many. I mean, I don't know if we've gotten into the practical joke stuff. I mean, uh, he he was playing in the U.S. Open at Congressional. It was the one that Ernie Els won, and um, he asked me to pick him up in my little caddy rental car. His wife must have been in town, and maybe she was keeping the courtesy car. So he said, "Hey, can you pick me up, and we'll go to the golf course from there?" So he said, "Sure." So I go pick him up in my my junky little rental car, and we drive over to Congressional. We pull into the parking lot for our you know 1:30 tea time there on Thursday, and there's no parking spots anywhere. And we're driving around, driving around. We can't find any. And then finally we spot one. So I basically have to stick it in reverse and drive back to the spot that he's seen. And, you know, you're going a mile and a half, an hour, you know, in reverse heading backwards. And there's a guy walking parallel to the car and he's, you know, on his phone or he's doing this or doing that, but he's not paying attention to what he's doing. So at some point, this guy takes a left turn and walks right into the side of the car that, that I'm driving as we're kind of driving by. And he just kind of bumps off of it and says, oh, sorry, and goes about his business. I park the car and uh, Phil goes in to change his shoes. So, you know, I go to the range, you know, again, it's the first round of the U.S. Open. At this point, Phil hadn't won a major. So, you know, you're that much more keyed up about what's going on and you're cleaning the grips and making sure there's food in the bag. And I've been there for about 10 minutes and it's a tap on the shoulder. And I think it's Phil and it's it's two state troopers. Oh my God. I know where this is going. (laughs) Yeah. Excuse me, Sarah. We're under the, we've just been told that you were involved in a hit and run in the parking lot here. (laughs) Like hit and run. I was going I was going a mile an hour and the guy walked in the car. He goes, that's not what we hear. And can you step over here and talk to us? Well, now the range is coming to a complete standstill and everyone's looking around at me getting arrested basically. And I, I just happened to glance over one of these state troopers' shoulders, and I see Phil's head popping out from behind a tree, laughing his rear end off. 
And, and again, that's Phil. I mean, it's Thursday of the U.S. Open. You'd have thought he would had better things to deal with at that particular moment. But, he, you know, he wanted to uh, have a little fun with me. And, and, and there was a lot of that. You know, there was some good times. And, uh, you know, that's a, certainly a story. There's a PGA Tour story uh, when he won in 2005 at Baltusrol. You know, Phil's very specific about how he sets up his clubs. You know, we, you know, you've got this, you've got that. For a long time there, there was a 64-degree wedge. So we had to make accommodations based on that. And, and that year in 2005, it was incredibly hot. It was a south wind. You know, you set up your bag and everything's perfect. And he's trying to finish off the tournament there on Sunday against a couple of guys. And, and we were on the 13th or 14th hole, and this huge storm comes in, a lot of lightning. And they basically, you know, send everybody into the clubhouse and the storm's so significant. They're like, okay, everybody, you're going to have to come back on Monday and finish. It was that famous event where Tiger flew home. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, he, he came close to being at a playoff or whatever, but it was just that particular week. So, you know, we get up again on Monday, you get up on Monday morning and, it, you know, you're trying to again finish off this, what would be Phil's second major win. And because this storm was so significant, it completely changed the weather. And it went from 100 degrees to 75. And that south wind that I'd mentioned was completely out the door. It was now a north wind. Well, we had set up our bag for this weather. You know, that you now can't take the clubs out of your bag and change things. You know, for that Monday finish, you've got to have the 14 clubs you, you teed off with there on Sunday morning. And we were absolutely screwed on the 16th hole there, which is a very long, hard par three. So there we are on the range talking about the holes we're going to have to deal with as he tries to, to, to win this tournament. And we realize that we don't have a club that he can hit off the 16th there at Baltusrol. He's got a four iron and he's got a four wood. And the yardage is going to basically land somewhere in between those two clubs. And we've got nothing. So it was this incredibly almost like depressing feeling, knowing that in about an hour, when you get there, you're going to play a hole that you can't make par on because we just can't get to the green. It was a back pin. There is no way he was going to kind of tap a forward. So he had to smoke a four iron into the front bunker and try and get up and down for some 80 or 90 feet, which he wasn't able to do. And of course, he made the bogey. Um, but again, he's a resilient guy, part 17, and, and then played one of the best golf holes I ever saw him play there uh, on 18 at Baltusrol. Just hit a huge drive down the middle, you know, forward to the front right of the green, chipped it to two feet and made it for the win. And again, you know, he's he's got this mind. He's got this championship DNA where he can compartmentalize things, deal with things, kind of brush it off. OK, that's over now. I'm going to go win the tournament on the last hole. And he did. Hmm. That's a great story. How often are you changing clubs out between rounds in, in tournaments? Is that a common thing? It, it, you know, Phil was, you know, Phil is a techie guy and, yeah. and, and, and he would do that. You know, one of the things that, 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 you know, he knew and, and luckily I knew once was you can change a club after the 72nd hole before a playoff. And, and he did that on, on his way to winning the Atlanta tournament one year. We figured out the way the wind was blowing on the 18th hole there at TP Sugarloaf, which is a very reachable par five, that we didn't have a club, given the way the wind was blowing at the time, that we'd be able to hit on that green. So we asked an official, we right here, can we change equipment after the 72nd hole before a playoff? And the guy says, you absolutely can. Hmm. So uh, we went and got the forward. He dro drove it, uh, hit the fairway, hit the forward on the green and won the playoff. Wow. Well, those are some amazing, uh, just tremendous Phil stories. And I've got a couple of questions and we'll get you out of here. Um, that may or may not have been influenced from Max. I asked him what to ask you. Uh, first, he wanted me to ask you about Caddy Karma. Can you tell us about Caddy Karma? <laughs> yeah. So I'm big. We were, we were, t so of course, there was so many conversations at Kiwa about, you know, these aren't bunkers. You know, they, there was a big, you know, sign there on the first tee when I walked the course on Saturday and I took a picture of it with my phone and I sent it to Max, you know. There are no bunkers this week, even though there are rakes. So as the folks at home saw, you could ground your club uh, in the sand or the waste area or whatever you want to call it, the native area. But they weren't bunkers per se, as these guys see the other 51 weeks of the year. So then the conversation became, what are the caddies going to do? Are you going to rake them? If there's no rake, are you going to smooth it over with your foot and, and try and leave it as you found it? And I'm just a big believer. I mean, you know, golfers are superstitious. I'm not overly superstitious, but 
you know, I believe that if you're good to the golf course, the golf course would be good back to you. So I had this thing when I was working for Phil where like if there was garbage blowing across the fairway, I was going to run over there and pick it up <laughs> because, you know, I just want to be good to the golf course. I want it to, to, to like Phil. I want it to like me too. And, and maybe it would be good back to us in the long run. And so, uh, so Max, you know, I told Max, man, I'm raking everything this week because again, you, you, you want Kiowa Island to like you in the long run. Hmm. And then secondly, what was Gary Woodland's advice for you to make uh, to make Max feel at home with you? Yeah, so everybody, Joe Griner, Max is, you know, full-time and real caddy, is a beloved guy out there. And, of course, there was a lot of teasing going on back and forth with Joe ultimately, you know, goes and qualifies for the USGA four ball, so he's out playing in Chambers Bay, you know, with Max's blessing. Max was so excited for him, but, uh, you know, they were certainly teasing him because he wasn't there to hear it, so... Gary Woodland's suggestion was that I give Max a couple of bad yardages each day just to make him feel like, you know, Joe was maybe actually there, you know, suggesting that Joe actually did that. But of course, Gary was being funny. Joe's a fantastic caddy and, uh, and uh, a big part of all the success that Max has had in the last few years. Yeah. They made the match play. I'd say it was a worthwhile, worthwhile trip for him, but uh, anything I didn't ask you about from, uh, from Kiowa from the 2021 uh, PGA that uh, you maybe have had stored away that you, to, to wrap this up. You know, no, I just thought that, uh, you know, it was just, it was an amazing venue. I, I went there in 1991 with Larry Mize. A lot of players went there the day after the Masters. Dave Stockton was like, uh, hey, can you guys go down there and play and, and get used to the course, you guys that are in contention to make that Ryder Cup team? Ultimately, Larry didn't make it, but I'll never forget, you know, caddying there the first time. This, of course, was before the, you know, the new equipment we have today. The ball didn't go nearly as far. And, I was caddying Larry, for Larry, you know, he was just playing by himself and we were cruising through, uh, you know, the back nine there it was really windy and incredibly hard. And we knew that Tom Kite was ahead of us uh, out, out there. And, uh, um, you know, we got to the 16th hole and we could see Tom Kite over there on the 17th tee just kind of hanging out. And so we, we finished 16. And again, Tom's not going anywhere. He's obviously waiting for us. We figured he just wanted to play last couple of holes with Larry. And so we finally caught up to him there on 17th scene and said, hey, Tom, uh, what's going on? Everything good? He goes, yeah. He goes, everything's great. I'm just out of balls. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he wanted to wait for Larry to catch up. So he had a couple of golf balls to use there on 17 and 18. And, and you know, that was my first trip around that golf course. And obviously Tom Kite, who was as a, a amazing a ball striker to his day as anybody could hit it on an absolute string. I mean, it speaks for certainly how, how hard that golf course is always been and how impossibly tough it was in, in 91 when it opened so I, i've got so much respect for the place i thought it showcased so beautifully on tv it was in amazing condition that past palm grass whoever invented that should be on a stamp i mean it was just you know just incredible to see and uh you know it was a joy to be there awesome well hey thanks so much for your time as always man i always greatly appreciate your contributions to our content and uh Thanks for helping us put this uh, a historic major in the books with uh, with some extra perspective. It's greatly appreciated. So thanks, Bones. You bet, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect